Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg. News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. On the show today, communications guru Terry Prone tells us about her green life. And as Europe commits to moving away from a disposable society, we'll be exploring Ireland's journey into the circular economy. Of course, we'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth@newstalk.com. It's time to head down to earth, beginning with our news roundup. Yes, it's our regular feature, The Weekly Planet, with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week we feature a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Welcome back, Craig. Hi, Carla. How are you doing? Great. To get us in the mood for this first story, have a listen to this. Yes, we're starting with a trip across the pond to Yellowstone National Park, which stretches across Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. And it's actually the first national park in the USA, which was established 150 years ago. So, Craig, I've been fascinated about this story. I'm not sure how long ago you heard about it, but this idea that in 1995 they reintroduced gray wolves into the park and it had all these beneficial uh, cascading effects. Have you heard this story? Yes, I have. It's very well known within my world, uh, Kara. And uh, it is, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, scientists thought reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone would be significant. They are keystone, what's called a keystone species, uh, which means that so much of the ecosystem depends on them. But I think even people like myself, even people ecologists have been very surprised by just how significant the impacts have been. Because, of course, there are uh, predator species. Uh, and uh, one of the problems that existed in Yellowstone because of the absence of predators like wolves uh, was actually that you had very high populations of deer in the park. That means deer eat lots of trees, particularly, you know, the saplings, the small ones. So there was actually a problem that there wasn't the natural regeneration of trees happening in Yellowstone is, is the way that people wanted. Uh, and actually, when wolves were reintroduced, you know, it was thought, yes, obviously, wolves might kill a few deer and help reduce numbers that way. But actually, what's been observed over the last you know, uh, 25 years is much more profound impacts. And specific, I'll just give you one of them, which is that uh, deer would obviously normally go down to rivers uh, to drink. But of course, that's when they were exposed to being seen by wolves. And so, you know, yes, wolves killed a few deer, but actually the biggest impact is deer started to be much more wary and avoid some of the most obvious areas. Uh, so the created what so-called a landscape of fear, which meant that deer avoided some of those more exposed areas, which meant that you got much more natural regeneration in them. So you've ended up having many more trees and undergrowth growing around the rivers on Yellowstone. That's good for trees, but it's also good for protecting the water quality, stopping soil erosion, creating whole new habitats around those rivers. So just by reintroducing wolves in 1995, it's led to a profound change uh, for the better for the eco ecosystem in Yellowstone. And it's just so revealing what can happen when there's just one species missing from an ecosystem. And when you put it back in, uh, the impact it can have is huge. Yeah, it's strange to think that this landscape of fear can have all these benefits to the environment. But, you know, bears were able to come back because they had more access to food. Other animals came back. And, and even the drinking water quality of the local town improved because the deer or the elk weren't, weren't near the water courses and weren't damaging the water courses as they had. But a story exactly. just appeared in the Washington Post this week that reports that one third of those wolves are now dead. So you're a bit of a wildlife expert. I, I think our I remember you did your master's thesis on bears in Mongolia. So what's happening in Yellowstone right now with the wolves? Well, it's tragically sad, Cara. I mean, it seems to be that the sort of argument whether to hunt wolves or not has become politicized in the US in, in just the way that so many other issues have. And you would know this better than I would. Uh, but it seems to be that, you know, obviously those uh, sort of, for example, Trump supporters have been really keen arguing that it's, it's sort of a right to hunt wolves and it's part of people's heritage uh, and obviously conservationists have said come on these are predators you don't really go around trying to shoot predators from a uh, what's a good ecological point of view and so um, actually the Trump administration first of all uh, made it legal to hunt uh, wolves again that was overturned uh, uh, in a ruling just last month but it doesn't apply 
to the states in question, to Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. And so uh, where you've got Republican-led states, uh, where wolf hunting, uh, some of the most intense fights about wolf management are playing out, where wolf hunting is very much seen as something that is you know, a part of a proud tradition. And so very sadly, we've seen 25 wolves uh, hunted in the last six months in Yellowstone. And for, for again, for um, predators, you know, that's, that's a big number. You know, uh, the whole thing is, is that predators are, any animal that's big and fierce is also rare for the because they're at the top of the food chain so it's a real kind of concern and uh, it, it seems to have been a, a very become a very heated debate in Yellowstone yeah I mean this is the most intensively studied animal population in the world because it was reintroduced relatively recently and and you know it's had huge benefits to Yellowstone they they had the most tourists in history last year five million people visited and they're saying that the wolf viewing alone accounted for 30 million US dollars to 60 million US dollars every year so it, it's this kind of stick it to liberals thing going on with with local hunters but at the same time having these potentially damaging effects long term with respect to both the environment and the local economy. Yeah, and you know, there's often a lot of myths and misunderstandings uh, exist around you know species reintroductions. I mean, in the UK, my organisation, the Wildlife Trust, has been reintroducing beavers, and you know, some of the pushback we get is we, we sort of even have sort of fishing communities sometimes arguing that the beavers are going to eat all the fish. But of course, beavers are vegetarian, so I don't know <laughs> quite how, how that would happen. So it's kind of curious that people will often almost believe some of the myths that exist in in culture around animals like like and particularly like wolves i mean again wolves are um incredibly unlikely to attack humans i mean really to be honest only it's only even if they've got rabies and even then that's unlikely so you know they are magical creatures i think wolves and uh, absolutely a key part of the ecosystem and if they're not there and if they're not there in the numbers they should be in the ecosystem's not functioning the way it should so um, it's, uh, you know, I hope this debate will get to the right place in the U US where wolves are celebrated, the huge benefits for tourism and for the ecosystem and for things like water quality, as you say, are fully recognised. And uh, wolves can go about their business in peace. Let's hope so. The story that actually got the most amount of coverage this week was one uh, based on a study published in Nature Climate Change, which used three decades worth of satellite data to look at the health of the Amazon rains, rainforest. And, and what did they find, Craig? Yeah, well, you and I, Carl, will know that uh, the uh, it's long been predicted that the Amazon rainforest will could reach a tipping point. And sort of everyone knows one of the things you learn at primary school, really, is just how important the Amazon rainforest is for sucking carbon out of the air and storing carbon, of course. And that's been crucially important. It plays such a hugely important role in sort of regulating the climate globally because it's so huge. But it has been long concerned that that could, could change and that actually with climate change, you get what's called a positive feedback loop. Uh, and positive in this case does not mean it's good. It means it's actually, as you get more climate change, it could lead to drying out of the Amazon rainforest, putting more pressure on it. And then actually the trees dying off and it turning into a savanna landscape, which would uh, suck out much less carbon from the air and also store less carbon. And the really big concern from this new study this week is it looks like we're getting closer and closer to that. I mean, bear in mind that already around a fifth of the Amazon rainforest has been lost. Uh, and because of uh, obviously because of logging and other issues and, and fires and so on. Um, but actually, this new study suggests that. Uh, many, many trees across uh, the Amazon rainforest are now losing health and could be approaching that tipping point. And we could be close to a mass die off of trees, which then would become very hard to reverse. I mean, this is looking, as you said, at three decades of satellite data, and it suggests that there's a loss of resilience in more than 75% of the forest. So this is a huge concern for all of us globally. One thing that I want to point out, and I think we throw out the words tipping point and positive feedback loop, and, and, and maybe people don't realize that tipping points are among the greatest fear of climate scientists because they're, they're irreversible on human timescales. Yeah. So just like they, they call it a tipping point because it's like the tipping of a wine glass. You know, once the, once the glass tips over and all the wine pours out, you can't get it back into the glass uh, very easily. So if at all, so I mean, I think people aren't really, that those words tipping point aren't resonant resonating with the public in the way that they should and how critical that they actually are. Another way to understand this is these are nonlinear changes. Uh, so it, you, you might sort of get the change happening in a certain rate uh, for a period of time, and then it passes those tipping points. 
And exactly as you say, not only is it irreversible, but actually you can get the change happening at a far quicker rate than before. And, uh, you know, much as we would be very upset about losing wine from our wine glass, this is a much, much bigger concern. Bear in mind that the Amazon rainforest is home to one out of every 10 species known to science as well. So, you know, this has huge implications for the climate, but it also, for all we know, we could be uh, losing the sort of cure to cancer and other things. I know it's a bit of a cliche to say that, but it's absolutely true. It's a big concern. And of course, a lot of this is, is not helped by President Yair Bolsonaro in Brazil, as you indicated there, Cara. You know, he also almost made it a, a physical, big ideological push during the time of his presidency to uh, actually uh, reduce parts of the Amazon rainforest and log it and, and set forest fires in place. You might remember the Glasgow Climate COP uh, just in uh, last October. There was a deal done around trying to uh, halt deforestation uh, by the end of this decade. And uh, actually, Brazil did sign up to that, which is encouraging. But whether it will actually be delivered is, of course, another issue. And I think the final point to think about on this is uh, let's not just point the finger at Brazil here. I mean, probably one of the biggest sources of, uh, one of the biggest causes of deforestation in the Amazon now is actually to make way for big plantations for soya, which uh, much of that is then exported, including to Europe, where it's fed to animals like chickens and pigs uh, on our sort of chicken and pig farms uh, to grow meat for consumption in Europe and the same in the US and in many other parts of the world. So often when you tuck into, uh, you know, some chicken uh, here in uh, the UK or Ireland or in many other parts of Europe, actually essentially you're eating bits of Amazon rainforest in many cases. Yeah. So we, we've got to look at how all of these kind of issues are linked and look at how our own consumption here in the global north in rich countries actually might be driving this loss of Amazon rainforest in Brazil. Absolutely. So finally, Craig, plastics is in the news every week, but this time it's in a good way. So what's the latest big story on plastics? Yeah, well, we've been desperately looking for some good news on plastics for a long time, haven't we, Cara? <laughs> and uh, actually, this is tentatively a good news story because in the last week, 175 countries have agreed to a legally binding global treaty to end the plastic pollution crisis. And by doing it, by tackling the materials entire supply chain, this has been talked about for a long time. There was a proposal from Japan to have a more limited deal that focused on plastics in the oceans. I mean, you know, obviously it'd be great to, to just deal with plastics in the oceans. That would be good. But what's even better is uh, an opposing idea by Peru and Rwanda seems to have won out which is to try and tackle plastic pollution uh, along the whole supply chain and stop producing so much of it in the first place, essentially. Um, so it's a good news story that countries have come together to say they want to do this and they say they want it to be legally binding. Of course, we, we know, however, we have got supposedly legally binding agreements in place to tackle both climate change and biodiversity loss as well, and they move painfully slowly. And uh, unfortunately, they haven't been the big silver bullet to solve those problems. And I think this is not going to be the silver bullet to solve the plastic pollution uh, crisis either. But it is a step in the right direction. And it's good to see countries of the world at long last, perhaps just starting tentatively to start to take the plastic pollution crisis. The BBC seriously. reported this as supporters describing the move as one of the world's most ambitious environmental actions since the 1989 protocol and supporters being WWF. I'm a little pessimistic. I mean, having worked with Friends of the Earth, uh, sometimes those global international agreements are dismissed as talk shops. I, I, I don't know where you stand on that issue, but do we really need another global treaty that takes us 30 years to resolve or longer? I think it would be a huge mistake for anyone to rely on this uh, to drive the change. I mean, my view of these big international agreements is they raise, if you like, the bottom bar of performance. They 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 pull up the sort of the, the worst performing uh, companies, countries, whatever. And uh, and it's not where you see the cutting edge new innovation and action. But we need both, don't we? And so um, it still remains critically important that every individual tries to reduce plastic pollution, that every company tries to reduce their uh, involvement in plastic pollution, that we cut plastic out of our supply chains. Um, I'm really uh, excited at some of the work being done in the EU at the moment around a circular economy, trying to produce that and, and tackle some of the plastic pollution there. 
as a Brit, I look, look on with admiration, but sadly, we're not part of that discussion anymore. I wish we were, but sadly, we're not. Um, but I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's great to see that finally this issue is being tackled and talked about. But as you say, we've got to move from talking about it to really stopping this. Well, that brings us into a great segue. After the break, we're going to find out about Ireland's move to a circular economy. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better future for all. You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk. In a few minutes, I'll be speaking to IBEX Neil Walker as he fills me in on their plans to adapt to a workforce that's becoming more conscious about its waste. But before the break, I was actually speaking to Craig Bennett about the possibility of a new global treaty on plastics. And there's no doubt that we're all sick of plastic and all the waste that's foisted on us by retailers and manufacturers. But what if it didn't always have to be this way? I'm joined now by the Government of Ireland's Minister of State for the Department of Environment, Climate and Communications and also the Department of Public Expenditure Reform, Ushin Smith, who's here to tell us about Ireland's plans to move away from a disposable society to a more circular economy. Welcome, Minister Smith. Hi, Cara. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks so much for joining us. So for for those people who aren't familiar with this idea of a circular economy, can you explain what it means for us really in our everyday lives? Yeah, it's a change from the type of economy that we've been focusing on up to now. So instead of thinking of the economy as where you dig things out of the ground, make products out of them in a factory, use them up, and then throw them away as fast as possible, that was our old economy, the, the take, make, break economy. Uh, we're, instead, the idea is that we look at our waste as a resource and we try to keep the things that the, the valuable products that are circulating in our economy to keep them within our economy rather than throwing them away, burning them, putting them in landfill. So the idea is to move towards an economy that keeps those valuable things circulating, a circular economy, rather than one that uses things up. So the idea is to focus on use and reuse rather than using things up. So the government recently published a whole of government circular economy strategy. What does that actually mean? We are focusing on uh, the, the type of economy we would have had 50 years ago, which would have been familiar to our parents. The idea that when something is broken, that you can bring it to uh, a, a shoe repairer or you can bring it to clothing repair, you bring it to your bicycle repair, rather than saying, well, it's not worth fixing I'm going to I'm going to throw it out and buy a new one. I'll have the pleasure of having the, the latest model. So the idea is to is to change our uh, our idea of what's a great thing to do um, with your with your money towards um, fixing and retaining things rather than buying new. So that all all sounds great, but the reality is, number one, it's usually cheaper to just go out and buy. A, a replacement product right now than it is to go get it fixed. And number two, a lot of the products are designed with this idea of planned obsolescence, where they're designed to fail so that we go buy a new one quickly compared to the way it used to be where, where products were designed to last. So is the government addressing those those issues? Yeah, and I, I think there are ways that, that there are, there's a number of ways we can do that. The, fir- the first is by setting the tax rate so that it's, you know, that the tax that's on repairing things is lower than it is on buying new. And you'll see that already if you go to fix your car, you'll see that the tax on the labor is lower than the tax on the on the on the parts. The second thing then is just to make sure that the parts are always available and that 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 idea of planned obsolescence, that thing about, you know, the manufacturer just hoping that once it breaks, you'll just go out and buy a new one, that that has got rid of. And this is the problem that's been uh, that has been looked at at European level. There is an eco design directive. And part of that was the idea that manufacturers must provide them, they, they must provide spare parts um, so that, that, that products don't get to a, a point where, where they can't be fixed. We also need the skills to fix them. Uh, so we need to make sure that there are people available. And that, that's another, another job for the government is to make sure that there are apprenticeships and that there are training courses for the most common types of, uh, of repair skills that are needed. So, you know, we've been working with Simon Harris to make sure that those, those kind of skills are, are provided for. Um, but you're you're absolutely right that you know when I, when I spoke to very large tech tech companies, they tell me that when they're designing a new product, until recently, you know repairability was not one of their uh, not 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 one of their targets, not one of their goals for their product design. So they might have all kinds of things like making their product waterproof or have a long-lasting battery or a great screen, but being able to fix it easily was just not there. So it's just another thing to add into the, the to the design is how durable the product can be 
how repairable it can be. And are, then forcing manufacturers to provide the parts, making sure people have the skills to do the job. Are these changes being forced on us by the EU? And, and will we face fines if we fail to meet targets like we've seen with greenhouse gas emissions? I wouldn't say they're being forced on us. I think there's there's a there's a we're taking part in these uh, in in this, and we are Ireland is certainly supporting the move towards a circular economy. Uh, I don't see any dissent. I don't see any other countries saying no. We 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 want to stick back in the old idea of you know of using things up and throwing them away. I think there's a general understanding and a, and a, just an acceptance that it, it isn't sustainable. It's not a it's not a good thing for the long term to just keep using up what we have and throwing it away and burning it and throwing it in a, into into landfill. And that this is a way to this is a way to improve our our sustainability uh, and and also. Having a circular economy, and I think this is relevant to what's happening in recent events, um, helps helps you to be uh, more uh, independent. It means that you're less dependent on supplies from from other countries if you can retain and you can fix what you have, rather than relying on supply chains that are coming in from other parts of the world that are that are somewhat unstable. So that that's 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 a part of it too, and it all links in with the climate goals as well, yeah. because you want to you want to minimize the amount of energy that's needed to get the products that you need to live with. So it, yeah, one of but one of the obstacles. One of the obstacles in Ireland creating a truly circular economy is one that we we you know we don't have we have a low manufacturing base so we're not really responsible for a lot of these products that are being designed but also too we don't really have any facilities for recycling materials instead we we offshore those materials and we incinerate our waste so is there plans for this to change so that we can become a more circular society? We do have a low manufacturing base, but you know we we it, that's no reason. Uh, not to not to repair the products that we have and not to keep those manufactured products in circulation once we have them because if we don't we're just going to have to import more more, more and more um and I, so I, I think that um Ireland really uh, Ireland does have a long way to go in this uh, we do export most of the products that we're like we're doing a lot we're doing a lot of recycling we're doing a lot of recovery of from our waste but then we're tending to um send those those recovered products abroad uh, once they're extracted from our from our green bin waste, for example, and that's because we don't have a lot of facilities for that. But there actually is a growing, growing market for it. And I know that a number of companies uh, are looking at setting up um, recycling facilities in in Ireland. Because, and the reason they are is because the volume of material available for them to recycle is just increasing all the time because that's what's provided for. It's it's amazing to see if you go out to to one of the material recycling plants where all the green bin trucks arrive and dump all their rubbish. You really see it is amazing to see them splitting up all of that domestic waste into really valuable components and separating out the aluminium the steel the, the light plastic the film plastic the hard plastic and then sending it all off uh, to to be to be reused but you're right at the moment it, it leaves the country uh, but in, rather than being done within Ireland. Finally, as you know, a key component of a circular economy seems to be this idea of a deposit and return scheme for things like plastic bottles. And we've seen repeated efforts over the years to try and get something like that going in Ireland. It's already going in nearly 50 countries around the world. Where are we in our journey for a deposit and return scheme? Yeah, we're, we're launching that later this year. Um, so what that's going to provide is that when you go and you, you um, when you've, when you've got a, a a can, uh, an aluminium can of a fizzy drink, or you have a, a see-through plastic bottle uh, that you've bought in a supermarket, um, you can bring that back to any shop that sells those products. Um, there would be a, a machine that you, you post the bottles into, it reads the barcode, and uh, and it, it simply gives you money back for them. So uh, I expect that amount of money will be 20 cents per, per can or bottle. And when that comes in, um, this is based on, on schemes that are, have been running around Europe for many years. And when, when that scheme goes live, uh, there will be a dramatic reduction in the amount of uh, plastic and aluminium cans and bottles that are left around on the ground or thrown away as waste. I'd expect a very high rate of, of return of those products. So that, that that's something that I think has a lot of support from the public. One of the reasons for it that people will support it, I think, is because they're used to the fact that that used to be there Again, in our parents' generation, we go back again when, when people were more efficient. Um, you know, used to be able to bring back bottles and get get money back from them. I remember doing that in the pub when I was a, when I was a kid. So this is this is it is being trialed already uh, in my local supermarket in Salinogan. They've already got one of those machines in, and all around the country, uh, every everyone who sells 
bottles and cans, we'll be able to take them back and give money back to the, the consumer. So our they, kids will have a source of pocket money by, by within the next 12 months, you're saying? I imagine they'll be going through the bins and so on, uh, but well, it's it's it is it is based on schemes that have run in, in other countries, and we so we've there's a lot of a lot of uh, research and a lot of work with the retailers as well has gone on to make sure that the scheme is going to work, uh, and I'm looking forward to it happening uh, later this year. Well, my 11 year old will be delighted with that. My thanks to Minister Ushin Smith for filling us <laughs> in on Ireland's plans to go circular. Now. It's wonderful to talk about plans for a circular economy, but a 2019 survey showed that only half of businesses know what's meant by the term. So it's clear we have a a long way to go in shedding our disposable economic model. Here to address these challenges, I'm joined by Dr. Neil Walker, Head of Infrastructure, Energy and Environment and Transport for the Irish Business and Employers Confederation, IBEC, and one of the organizations involved in that survey. Hi, Neil. Good morning, Cara. Neil, with all the talk about moving to a circular economy in both European and Irish policy over the last seven years, I was really surprised to read this statistic that only half of businesses knew what the term meant. Why do you think that is? Well, perhaps it's because the survey was of CEOs. I'm sure that there would have been people elsewhere in their organizations who might have been more familiar, given that the circular economy is hardly new. It's been around for decades Um, But one of the specific questions is whether or not they were aware of the European Commission's Circular Economy Action Plan. It was a real wake-up call for us that firms who were aware of it were doing roughly twice as much to address it as those who weren't. How how do you see that this move to a circular economy will ultimately affect Ireland and affect Irish businesses? Do you think it'll be something that we see changes over the next decade, or do you think it's a longer-term thing? I think what we've seen so far is is the tip of the iceberg. Um, a, a lot of it has been to do with plastics and in particular litter and more specifically marine litter um, and waste management and the need to avoid landfill. But fundamentally, the, the way we see it is we need to be designing products that don't become waste uh, because 80% of the environmental footprint of a product is baked in at the design stage. And we now see the European Commission making moves uh, to introduce a new regulation that will effectively repeal the eco-design directive, which solely covers the energy efficiency of electrical products, to encompass virtually all products in the economy. And they'll be targeting all the, the big problem areas initially, but eventually there will be thousands of products that you literally won't be able to put on the market unless you can show that they are produced in a sustainable way, that the products are repairable, durable, upgradable, easily recycled, contain no hazardous substances uh, and can be remanufactured, or at least if they are going to be recycled, it'll be in a very high quality way. And that means a complete transformation of the types of supply chains that we have. So individual companies won't be able to do it unless they work in concert with their suppliers and their customers. This is going to be the biggest data gathering exercise since Y2K, particularly uh, since it will involve digital product passports that enable anybody by scanning a barcode uh, or a QR code to see exactly how the product was made and the environmental footprint of every single stage in the supply chain. This is going to be transformational. We don't have a lot of control over our supply chains in Ireland, given that we're we're so dependent on imports and we don't have a large manufacturing base. So how do you see Irish businesses actually being part of these solutions in terms of product design? Well, the larger ones um, who would have some control of the supply chain need to be setting an example. And the smaller ones who are part of supply chains need to prepare. Otherwise, they may find themselves no longer part of that supply chain. The other thing we've noticed, um, particularly on foot of COVID, but but also more recently the the crisis in the Ukraine, is the importance of local supply chains. So again, that's a long-term change, but I think it is, is coming. Well, my thanks to Dr. Neil Walker of IBEC for his views on moving to a circular economy. After the break, we'll be speaking to Terry Prone about her environmental journey. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today. 
to shape a better future for all. Welcome back to Down to Earth here on News Talk. In a few minutes, we'll be talking to Terry Prone, who's going to describe how her life has become more green over the years. But first, I'm joined by Graham Fox, head of retail distribution for Amundi. Good to have you back, Graham. Thanks a million, Cara. It's great to be here yeah, again. In Good studio see- this time, huh? I was just going to say that in person. Yeah. <laughs> what a change. So we've been talking today about Ireland's move to a circular economy. Absolutely. And a survey by IBEC that found that only half of Irish businesses even know what's meant by that concept. So as Europe's largest asset manager, does Amundi sure. see that circular economy model becoming part of retailers' practices? Absolutely. I think it's like the whole idea of the circular economy is really a way for us to help in the area of you know re- reducing carbon emissions and the whole kind of move to net zero. And I think the circular economy in general, like that has to be something we adopt, not just from a business perspective, but but as an economy as a whole. And, you know, even from an individual perspective. And it's that focus on the use of the good rather than the actual good itself, which is really, really important. And we, we've done a huge amount of work on this within Amundi ourselves. And um, just to give you an example, back in 2020, we started this three year program on the circular economy and we focused in. You're familiar with the fact and that the the EU have looked at kind of seven key areas within the regard of the circular economy that are kind of what we call resource intensive. So we focused on four of them, so textiles, batteries and vehicles, construction and building work, and also um, the area of uh, sustainability. And, and, and in essence, we looked at those four and we interviewed 30 different companies from across the world really to get an idea of from those companies, how do they work with the circular economy? How are they going to adapt their businesses? What are the important areas? And what we found is the results of those interviews has meant to us that we can now look over the next couple of years about other companies and help them transition towards this idea of the circular economy as well. So you're seeing this happening in businesses. Absolutely, We yeah. also have to get the general public on board. And Amundi conducted their own survey recently on Irish attitudes to environmental, yes. social and governance issues. So what did you find in your own survey? Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. Like we did the survey for, for one really simple reason. It was to try and get a view, what does the Irish public think about sustainability, think about responsible investing, but also understand about this area. And I think that's really important. As an industry, sometimes we make a lot of assumptions about what people know. And this survey really came out with some really interesting findings. The first, and I think the first of the two key findings for me was the fact that there's a real want within the Irish population to do good. Like that certainly comes through really strong. And you can see that like, 82% 82% of the respondents said over the last 12 months they actually made a change, like they changed their lifestyle, whether that was doing more recycling or, you know, using less plastic, traveling less, using the car less. So that that really practically people are doing things. Yeah, and this was 1,001 respondents from a wide range of demographics across Ireland. So it's fairly representative then. Absolutely. Too. And that was an important part of the survey was that we wanted to make it representative of the Irish population. So different socioeconomic backgrounds, a good split between male and female, you know, you've a good split across the different counties of Ireland. So we really got a real representative view. But like, it's interesting, like, because one of the other stats, and I don't want to talk loads of percentages here, but 76% of the respondents actually said they were concerned about the planet that they were going to leave to their future generations. So what we saw in the survey was there's this real want by the Irish population to do better and do good. But the second key finding, and I think this was the really interesting one for for us as an industry, is we need to do more as an industry. And it came true really clearly that a lot of the terms that we use to talk to investors, our savers about the area of responsible investing, that connection is missing. So a lot of people don't understand what ESG means. Mm -hmm. 11% of people understand what the term ESG meant from our survey. And that's a term we use a lot. So environmental, social and governance. Only 60% of the people uh, knew what the the term responsible investing meant in the sense that a lot of people thought responsible investing meant being cautious with your money. So people weren't making the connection with the terms that we were using with investing in companies that were doing good to better our planet and our society. And that's a key learning for us. We've got to do more. We've got to go on a journey with the population, with the people of Ireland to help 
make that transition and help people understand these terms a lot more as yeah, well. Yeah, the language gap is always part of the problem uh, and the challenge. Absolutely. Now, I was really interested in the statistics. Maybe it's the scientists in me. You <laughs> mentioned the 82% of respondents had made a lifestyle change. Then you looked into their savings and 77% of them had some form of savings. Obviously, we've been saving more during, during lockdown and everything. Uh, and 23% hold some kind of investment. So there's a big gap and a big opportunity between people's intentions and the want to do good and the fact that they have maybe some money they could invest, and, and but actually they're not investing. So responsible investing was a, a key theme that came up. What, what were your conclusions from that? Yeah, I think our conclusions from this is that people want to do better and they want to do something with their savings, which helps the planet and society. But there's a gap in how do they do it? And I think that's something we're going to work on a lot over the next number of months, especially in Ireland. We're launching a program in the Irish market in relation to this whole area to help uh, end investors make that connection. But you're right, there's a massive opportunity there. You look at the amount of money that's sitting on deposit and um, the central bank released statistics last year and it's it's in the billions now. It's over well over 100 billion. But in essence, a lot of that money that's sitting on deposit that are in people's savings accounts, that are sitting in people's pensions, People are telling us they actually want to do something with that that helps society. There's plenty of options out there in the marketplace. Um, ourselves, we provide options through our partnership with Irish Life and um, for people to invest in areas that will actually help improve the planet and society as well. So we're, we're going to do a lot of work in this space. So I'm one of those people that would love sure. to take my <laughs> meagre bit of savings and put it into responsible investing, but I, I find it really overwhelming. It's really hard to know if a company is truly Absolutely. environmentally friendly and ethical and everything else. Where does an individual like me go to get started in this journey. And I wouldn't say meager. <laughs> I think every, look, it doesn't matter. Every every bit of saving, every everything we can do together will help. I always talk about, you know, small steps and it comes to small steps. I, I talk with my daughters and they're telling me about recycling and I've got much better at recycling over the last number of years. So when it comes to savings, sometimes people think I have to have this big pot of money and I, I'm not, that's not for me. Everyone has savings. Everyone's putting a little bit aside. So why not put something towards helping the environment and helping the planet as well? It's quite easy. What I would say to you is talk to a financial advisor. Um, there's lots of financial advisors all over the country. A financial advisor will sit down with you. They'll have a conversation with you about what your goals and objectives are. And if you say, well, actually, I want to invest in an area that is going to help the planet, help society. I want to invest in those types of companies. The financial advisor will analyze the market for you then and come back with options. What I would say at that point is stay true to your values. Ask the questions. You know, the financial advisor is there to tell you if these funds are aligned to what your values are. So if you say, I want to invest in funds that are more orientated towards companies that are trying to, you know, reduce carbon emissions, etc., the financial advisor will be able to talk through that. Excellent. Well, now I know where to get started. My thanks to Graham Fox of Amundi for his insights and their insights into Irish attitudes on the environment and responsible investing. Now, every week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. And today, chairman of the communications clinic and communications guru, I think, Terry Prone, joins us. So I am dying to get into your expertise and insights on communications and climate communications in particular. But I think we should start by mentioning that your green life extends well beyond comms as far back as your teen years. So tell us about that environmental epiphany. Well, I was a poor teenager, but I was spending a lot of time in the city because I was in the Abbey Theatre School of Acting from the time that I was 13. And I got to know all of the secondhand bookshops, and there was a plethora of them at the time in the city. But there was one in particular that I really loved, and it was the Banba Bookshop on Tara Street. And you could go in there and for five pence, as it was, you could get maybe um, certainly one book, but you could come away with a bag, plastic bag full of books. And the women in the shop got to know me and they would actually set aside books and say, we thought you might like this when it came in. And one day one of them gave me this book and it was, do you remember, you're probably too young to remember, Blue Pelican paperbacks mm -hmm. and it said Silent Spring. And I'd never heard of the writer and then I read it. And it was the most amazing book because this woman 
said that because we were using pesticides everywhere, particularly a thing called DDT, that these were thinning out the shells of birds in the in the birds' nests, and that if we didn't stop using these pesticides, that there would come a springtime when there would be no bird song. There would actually be a silent spring. And it rooted me to the spot. It just froze me with the idea of a silent spring. And for the first time ever, I began to be interested in the things that were affecting nature. Dr. Rachel Carson is considered one of the premier, one of the first environmental communicators, and she really was responsible for the birth of the environmental movement in the United States. What do you think was was so effective about her communication style? Oh, because it satisfied the uh, three criteria of really good communication. It must be interesting. It must be understandable. It must be memorable. Scientists rarely do the middle one. They're rarely understandable. (laughs) And they often don't set out to be interesting. But she created pictures, stories, examples so that we could see what she was doing. And she had, as a result, a disproportionate effect. There would be revisionists now who would say, Rachel Carson may have been responsible for a resurge in malaria because DDT was remarkably effective against the mosquitoes that carry malaria. And malaria kills millions and it's a horrible disease. But nonetheless, back then, it was a simple proposition. We must stop doing this in order to survive. Now, your your green interests inspired by your teen years, you went on actually to have kind of an environmental career and that you were you were an advisor for several environmental ministers. So what's been some of the things that you were most proud of in that career? They, they tended to be accidental or, well, one of them wasn't accidental. At the time when I was advising one of those ministers, Porik Flynn, um, there was a strong push for... Um, an incinerator at the border to take care of waste, municipal waste in the north and in the south. Very strong and a major, major, major uh, incineration stroke chemical company was lobbying hard for it. And every time that it came past my desk in the, the custom house, I would say there's not a chance. There is no chance. Don't tell me all the benefits because there were fantastic benefits. One of the county managers who was very pro it said that in New England, incinerators create heat that is piped underneath the cranberry fields. And it all sounded great. But (laughs) I said, it's very simple. There are points in Irish life where an idea becomes welcome and acceptable. And there's nothing will stop it then. But there are also points in Irish life where an idea is absolutely unacceptable and an incinerator at that time was an unacceptable idea. This was the time when you didn't even say, for example, if you worked for one of the big pharma companies because they were all seen as having poisoned the rind, done dreadful things to the environment. And the very idea of an incinerator not possible. The one thing that um, where I changed policy accidentally was at the time the EU were about to fine Ireland enormous amounts of money because we weren't moving fast enough to take up unleaded petrol. And so I was asked this day would I come in and watch three presentations from ad agencies to do a campaign to make people more interested in unleaded petrol, which is not really one of the great enthusiastic uh, aspects of anybody's life. So I came in and I sat through three really good presentations and then I was sat down with the minister and the senior officials and they all made comments. And then the minister said, "What, what did I think? And I said, they were all great. And if I were you, I wouldn't use any one of them. And everybody looked at me and I said, you're not going to persuade people by advertising. And this is important. Very often people think that if you inform attitudes, you'll change behaviour. 
Whereas for the most part, it's the other way around. If you change behaviour, people's attitudes come into line with it. The classic example of that would have been seatbelts in cars. The RSA and all the other agencies have spent decades doing really good advertising uh, uh, campaigns, utterly pointless, trying to make people realise, ah, seatbelts are important. Once the law changed and once the Gardaí moved in to coerce people, the behaviour changed and with it changed the attitude so that now very few people say, I don't want to wear a seatbelt. They realise it's just a given. So I made this point to the people in the Department of the Environment and there was a kind of a dead silence and then somebody said, well, what would you do? And I said... There's a budget coming up in six weeks' time. I would drop the price of unleaded petrol 10 cents or whatever it was at the time below the price of leaded petrol. It's just amazing how many people will vote with their wallets. Mm. And there was a momentary sense that the civil service are always rightly wary of outside agencies trying to change policy. And there would have been a sense that this was an attempt to change policy. But they debated it around the table and eventually the minister simply said, we're doing it, I'm taking this, I'm doing a memo to Cabinet. And the end result was that in that budget, the price of unleaded dropped. And it was it was just phenomenal in its implications. Six months after that happened, we were in no danger any longer of being fined by the EU. Wow. So is it safe to say you'd support a carbon tax then? Oh, I absolutely. Yeah. And what do you think then of, of how the government and Ireland has been responding since then to changing behaviours around environmental issues? I think that governments have a major problem in that there is a kind of a Toblerone approach to the environment among the general public. Do you know peaks and troughs? And there's peaks where you have an environmental day of the year or something like that. Or you have people being very enthusiastic about recycling. But the totality, the integrated totality, that's a very pompous way of putting it, but, you know, all the things coming together... Um, I don't think any government really thus far has had that sense, has had the kind of Jared Diamond uh, model that says, if we don't do all of these things simultaneously, no matter what it costs us, there will be nothing left. No government has been able to do that. So progress has certainly been made. It's patchy progress and we should give the EU a fair amount of credit for being a constant presence in the argument. We talk about the need to bring people with us in solving the climate and biodiversity crisis. How do we get people to come along with us on this journey and, and, and help make that change? First of all, we actually need to do away with some of the words. Either because they have lost their flavour, you know the thing of chewing gum, um, sustainability has lost its flavour. Nobody knows what the hell it means anymore. Biodiversity is another of those. The, the, the thing that we have now is a situation where, I don't want to be sexist about it, but I have no choice. Women, particularly middle-aged and older women, do the stuff of recycling, composting, all of that, which is kind of environmental housekeeping and very admirable. But over here, we have a massive issue, probably summed up best in the word soil, in that soil is blowing away. The world is becoming like what happened in America when the white settlers moved across the prairies and knocked down trees and planted acres of grain and there was nothing to hold the soil or enrich the soil and the end result was a tragedy a generational tragedy and a permanent tragedy called the dust bowl mm -hmm. 
The other thing that I, as a communications consultant, am impatient with is research that says, oh, we need to be, we need to be very careful about frightening people. Mm. Well, do you know something? If we don't frighten them, they're not going to be around to be frightened or happy in a century. Mm-hmm. This is something we talked about, actually, in a previous episode about climate anxiety. And how do you get the balance right? Because you d- you don't want to frighten people to the point where they're overwhelmed and they dig their heads in the sand and they feel there's nothing they can do because the problem is bigger than them. So where is that kind of sweet spot in that in that communication? I think it's in your question. I think that thing of finding and addressing the individual sense of helplessness. I was talking recently to a young mother. She has two kids, younger than six, highly educated, at least two degrees, working, all of that. And the the subject of the environment and the the dangers and the length of time we have came up and at a certain stage, she said to me, I, I really don't want to think about this because I don't see what I can do. And I thought, that's, that's an issue that governments and environmentalists haven't grasped that we need, sorry, they need to equip the bright, the motivated, the young parents with the capacity to do more than put bottles in a bottle bank. Bottles in a bottle bank is great, but if every person between 25 and 35 had almost off by heart a list of 10 things that they could actually do that would actually, provably, measurably change something, that would be the beginning. This government probably has three more years, maybe, if they're lucky in terms of staying in power. What's the number one thing you would like to see them do to to sort of help us in this journey? I suppose the number one thing I would like them to do is to, and this is an impossible ask, but we must ask it, is to look at the current reality of the world, which is desperate. And it was desperate before Ukraine started to go under. Ukraine will go under, I believe. And that leaves every government in the Western world with a set of shocking, unwinnable choices to make, moral choices and active choices. And all I would say to them is, I know it sounds crazy, but this war with Russia is short term. The war we really need to win is the ecological war, the biodiversity war, the sustainability war, even though I said we shouldn't use either of those two last words. Yeah, well, I could talk to you all day about this. You are an absolute treasure and your contributions to how we communicate these issues, I think, are hugely valuable, Terry. My thanks to Terry Prone for her expert advice in getting everyone to adopt a green life. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. My thanks to our producer, Alex Rousseau, and thank you all for listening. Don't forget you can subscribe to the series on podcasts for free at Newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. Next week, we dig deep into the world of gas to find out where it lies in our low-carbon transition. But until then, stay curious.